everyone and welcome to another Scott Swahey podcast and today I'm joined by Dr Craig Lamont. Hello Craig. Hi Ali. And we're here to talk about your book which I'm going to hold up to the camera for the video viewers and it is The Cultural Memory of Georgian Glasgow and it's a, I mean I've only dipped in I haven't read through the whole thing yet you understand right. already fascinated by it even the fact that on the cover that's the Tron isn't it? That is yeah oh, yeah. So that's just around yep. the corner from where I used to live, which excites I me, know. really. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get into place in a minute, but yeah, as with a lot of academic things, people say, define your terms. So what is cultural <laughs> memory? How would you describe cultural memory? Well, I'm not going to try and do my, my sort of spiel that I give in the book itself, but I do define it in the book. I mean, it's an academic field in itself, memory studies, and the academics argue over what it means all the time. But to put it quite simply, cultural memory is the sort of leftover remnants, culturally speaking, of an era and time uh, that we can access through objects, art, literature, things like that. Contrasted with collective memory, which is um, we were all alive to witness or hear about something. So then that creates a collective memory of, an, of a world event. People often say the JFK assassination or 9-11. Cultural memory for something like George and Glasgow is very important because it was hundreds of years ago. So we rely on second-hand accounts, paintings like the one on the front cover, things like that. So very much not a collective memory, but something that we can access through culture. Right. So it's almost um, the objects themselves kind of hold and the places themselves hold the story. That's it. Yeah, that's pretty much how it works. And it's been fun to look at a city that way. I mean, I say a city. For, for me, it would have had to have been Glasgow. You know, that's where where we're from that's that's what, what we know I think the book was kind of also hopefully intended to be a blueprint for other places that may access their past in that way especially neglected pasts because obviously Glasgow's a Victorian city on the face of it so it was important to use these memory theories to to use metaphors like amnesia to use metaphors like forgotten to bring out the fact to look at all this great Georgian stuff that's just below the surface you have to kind of draw it out of the archive. That was that was kind of the, the running metaphor for it, you know. And Georgian Glasgow, um, it's kind of part of the long 18th century, the Georgian period, isn't it? Which basically means it's more than 100 years. What kind yep. of parameters have you put in in terms of time? Well, the timeline at the start of the book, it kind of looks at the Union. So obviously the, the Georgian period begins 1714. But the union is too important an event really to to not begin with. So it does it does blur the edges a wee bit. Um, and within the book itself, the the there is a lot of reflection on the Victorian period. So obviously, a lot of academic books, mine included, is a sort of spin off of the the PhD thesis. And in the PhD thesis, which was a lot longer than this, a lot chunkier, and probably a lot more waffly, if I'm being honest, I do take a lot of pride in the fact that this book is a, a more refined version of some of the arguments I had. But in, in the exam, I remember being told that I, I seem to have had it in for the Victorians, you know, like I was almost angry at them for um, for creating such a splendid city that's made us for, forget George and Glasgow. But And I did take the point, but what I've tried to do with this, with this book is say, right, we have to then look at, to understand George and Glasgow, you then have to consider the Victorian period as well, because it's the Victorians who either changed Georgian Glasgow by building over it, or they remembered things that happened in the Georgian era, such as the Jacobite Risings, and then remembering those events and changing the sort of 
I don't know how to put it, the the stance, the sort of Scottish or Glaswegian stance on the Jacobite risings over time, then by the time we come along and try and study it, we're not just accessing George and Glasgow through a history book, but we're accessing it through all these different perceptions and interpretations of any event that might have happened. So the core of the book is maybe the union up until the end of the Georgian period, but then there's a sort of new section where I look at um, how the Victorians displayed their past in the, the great exhibitions. So the one in 1888, for example, those really form that image of Glasgow that's been set in stone. And a part of it is to say the Georgian period was sort of washed over, you know. So basically you've taken the long 18th century and made it even longer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is, you know, I would love to have had a multi-volume thing going on here, but yeah, no, I've made it even longer for the purposes of, not just taking it in isolation, because if I was doing it in isolation, it would have just been a history of George and Glasgow, but to, yeah. to take it from this other angle of memory, you have to sort of say, right, well, when did we sort of start to neglect it or, or what happened to make us yeah. more proud of maybe shipbuilding, for example, you know? Um, so so I like to I like to draw out those things, although um, maybe there's the, the case to be made that you then miss out on some things, but I just think this is a, I like to see it as a fresh approach to something that we do need to to try and think about. And over that period, how did Glasgow grow in terms of numbers and size? I mean, because it was fairly small from what we know to begin with. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, I mean, I've, I'm looking here at the my own timeline. I quite enjoy doing that. I mean, it didn't break the the 100,000 uh, by by 1801. There were still only 77,000 inhabitants. So we're talking there's only 30 plus years of the the Georgian era left, and that's that was not a great amount of people. But the the way that Georgian Glasgow grew, and the way that we try and think about it now, I think, is that it was it was a mercantile town. It was also a university town. And it had the, the benefit of being both of those things at once. So you had a merchant class and you had the Scottish Enlightenment hand in hand. What you didn't have in Edinburgh, by comparison, where you had pretty much all the Scottish literati and you had the, the concentration of your Adam Smiths and your David Humes, you had that in abundance, but you didn't have the sort of in, industrialization. The early industrialization didn't really happen there. It started to happen in, in George and Glasgow while the Scottish Enlightenment was at its height. So it was a very unusual combination of um, early industry, you know, early trading, transatlantic trading was one of the biggest benefits to Glasgow. And we'll get on to slavery, perhaps, but I do cover that in the book. And th that whole trade itself did and has certainly recently started to define what we what we talk about when we're thinking about the 18th century. Glasgow being a transatlantic port in that sense is really where the wealth came from. It was that that extreme influx of wealth that you didn't always see where it came from because a lot of the trading obviously was done from, from Greenock or Port Glasgow. So the town itself didn't explode in the Georgian period, mm -hmm. but the agents of change were very much in Glasgow at that time in the, in the manor houses and collaborating with the great and good of the university. Yeah. I think it's interesting you talk about the Scottish Enlightenment period and people's perception of it because most people go straight to Edinburgh when they talk about yeah. Scottish Enlightenment, the Athens of the North and all of that. Yeah, exactly. I often think of the two cities as being one was um, the theoretical, the philosophical more so, although it was happening in Glasgow, but then you had this more practical aspect, the kind of science yeah. and uh, medicine in particular, which I think you yeah. touch upon in the book. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, um, you're, you're absolutely right. We, we do have, I mean, it's funny because when you talk about the theoretical and then when we apply that to Edinburgh, a lot of people take on Adam Smith as the sort of, you know, the big talking head for that stuff. But his time in Glasgow was very, very crucial as well. And I think a lot of people struggle with the, the sort of concept of Adam Smith in Glasgow because he's not very, he's not much of a, a suitable frame for, for the Glaswegian state of mind. I would, and I do propose this in the book. And I think for a lot of that, it's because maybe the reason why the Scottish Enlightenment hasn't survived in the sort of Glasgow cultural memory until maybe recently it started to come out a wee bit is because Glasgow's more proud of the working class element, the red clyde side, the sort of not taking in the sort of Smithian free trade tropes that we get from, from Edinburgh and the, the upper classes. And so Smith's time in Glasgow, crucial as it is, has been sort of ignored or neglected in favour of a more practical enlightenment, which certainly did happen at Glasgow. You had Joseph, Joseph Black was there, Cullen was there, Tobias Smollett was there, and those were the practitioners of medical advancement. I mean, the, the interesting thing is they, they all did at some point Think with the exception of Smollett, they, they all went to Edinburgh anyway. So there was a sort of route from Glasgow to Edinburgh to London, or sometimes just Glasgow to London. William Hunter being another big name as well. So yeah, it's it's amazing because I think maybe Glasgow had everything at one stage, but the proliferation of it seems to have just faded in the face of Edinburgh having a more clear version of it, if you know what I'm saying. So yeah. it wasn't, maybe Edinburgh was, it definitely, it definitely was, the most central location for it. I'm not trying to detract from Edinburgh's merits in that sense, but it's become the case that it's it's so often cited that things happened in Edinburgh that we don't really realise that they also happened in Glasgow or that the, the groundwork for a lot of those advancements happened in Glasgow. Yeah, uh, it's interesting you're saying about people leaving because that kind of, until perhaps recently, was the thing that people thought about almost anything you did. Well, if you really want to make it politics or arts or music, yeah. And you've got to get out of Glasgow and go somewhere else. Yeah. yeah, no, you're right. And there's there's things said about, um, I think it's Cullen. I'm trying to remember now. I'm trying to remember the other names. But I think when, when Cullen went from Glasgow to Edinburgh, all the students just went with him. Apparently, the students who really enjoyed his stuff and thought, this is the, this is the man for me. I'm going to apply my trade based on his teachings. It's like they just, they went. And obviously, the system was different back, back then. I think it was ticketed. So you could... They just said, well, I'll go there, you know, and that must have been devastating for, for for Glasgow's Enlightenment. And one of the things I try and do as well is to set the set the parameters of the of the Scottish Enlightenment, not short, not to shorten it, but to say that, you know, when when they all left and when when um, William Hunter died, especially James Watt was still kicking around doing his thing. But the, the heyday of the Scottish Enlightenment was very much over. So on the one hand, it did happen at Glasgow. But when, when they all left or died out, Glasgow had realised, that, that when I say Glasgow, I mean the university in this case, had realised they had something great and they tried to enshrine it and talk about it and build new and put up new buildings and institutions and, and advertise their sort of, their legitimacy as a centre of enlightenment. But by then it had all actually went. So they'd missed the boat in a sense. And I try and touch on that as well. So they were almost promoting something that had stopped. Yeah, that's that's the impression I get, especially in the early 19th century. It's almost as if they realised what amazing things had happened. I mean, there was a poem called Glasgow by a, a, a poet called John Maine, and he talks about, oh, Smith was here and he wrote The Wealth of Nations based on things here. And 
um, Hunter and Cullen, and he, he actually name drops everyone and they republished it in London in the early 19th century as if it was like a booster poem. It was as if to say, look what Glasgow had, but by then it had all gone, you know? So maybe that's a sort of reason, another reason why Edinburgh has remained in our minds, the sort of centre of that Enlightenment, you know? And so who were the Glasgow Enlightenment figures that you think has been, have been overlooked? Are there any that you would like to kind of talk about? Yeah, certainly. The, the ones that I certainly had the most fun researching were the Fowlis brothers, Robert and Andrew Fowlis. Um, they were involved in everything. I mean, they, they, they were the official printers to the university from the 1740s, the early 1740s. Robert Fowlis was the older brother and his younger brother, Andrew, um, came along and started helping him out. And what's fascinating about them is they represent something quite unique in Glasgow University's history. So they started off as, Robert started off as a bookseller. He then travelled to Paris and they saw that um, there was a lot to be had with dealing art as well, like the, the old masters, the old Dutch masters. And so he started collecting paintings and having them shipped back to Glasgow. And he, he saw how art schools were run and things like that. So all at the same time, when he came home, he established the Academy of Fine Art, or the Fowlis Academy, as we call it, mm -hmm. in the 1750s. And he was still printing the classics. He was still printing Homer. Um, he was still printing Virgil. He was printing some Alan Ramsey, but most, mostly they focused on the classics and they were winning prizes for it. Um, but the crucial thing is that their press only became renowned because they had the help of another university person who's been overlooked, and that was... Alexander Wilson and he was a he was a type founder um, so he actually collaborated with them to create a more recognizable and distinct um, publishing service for the university but what's fascinating about Wilson is he was also an astronomer right. and there's to this day there's still what they call the Wilson effect to do with sunspot activity and there's whole you know research areas out there that, that are to do with astronomy and science in that sense that still use Wilson's findings so you had a printer who turned to publishing, who turned to uh, founding an academy of fine art in the university, who collaborated with an astronomer. And while this all happened, Smith was there at the university as well. So, so that period in the university's history was like the absolute apex of the Enlightenment there. Um, it's also the same time where the, the likes of Smith and, and Robert Fellis would, would have meetings with John Glassford, who obviously had a lot of shipping interests and a lot of interest in the, the Americas and was directly involved in, you know, the, in chattel slavery. So there's there's the complication that comes out of that as well. And it was one of the famous Glassford portrait that hangs in the People's Palace that has the, the black servant on the, the left-hand side of it. It was one of Fowlis's pupils in the Art Academy that painted that. And it's one of his only renowned works, but it's because of that infamous attachment that it has, you know. So there's a whole... There's a whole network going on in Glasgow that um, that these two brothers, Robert and Andrew Fellis, were very much a part of, and they seem to have been forgotten completely. There is a there is a paving stone in Ingram Street outside the the Kirkyard there. So Ingram Street, we're talking the the Ramshorn Theatre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a paving stone set into the the pavement that's in the shape of like a big a book essentially. So it has the spine. And their names are on it, and that's quite an interesting wee thing to look for for their story. Is that on the pavement outside or in the actual graveyard itself? Oh, it's, that's on the pavement outside. So that's actually just outside the gates to the Ramshorn. You would people literally walk all over it every day. 
I must have done that almost daily for about 20 <laughs> years. I've not noticed that. Um, so there are these, it must be quite exciting to go and kind of look, where find where all these um, memories were. Yeah, as I think that that was one of the first things I tried to do because in the PhD years, part of the the premise was that I would work with Glasgow Life, Glasgow Museums to to contribute in some way and to learn from them about how a, an exhibition was set up and run. And so I was looking for physical markers. You know, I would spend half my time thinking about the, trying to wrap my head around the history because if I'm being completely honest before, 2012 I didn't really know much about the Georgian period at all I had to become yeah. knowledgeable quickly about it and that was that was exciting in itself because the pace of discovery made it that I was very much invested in sharing it you know and, and talking about it in a way that I thought would be quite interesting so finding the physical markers in the city was the, was the first thing you know because it's like right well why is it I've not known about this is, is it like this for other people too and just by walking around the town you are confronted very much with um, a beautiful city, but one that the Georgian aspects are, are sort of hidden or hidden in plain sight. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so the, when you were looking at it, you kind of went, there's an area of history here that has gaps that really need to be filled. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the thing is about Glasgow is we, we talk about shipbuilding so much and we talk about trade and uh, engineering. You know, there's a, there's a proud history of all of that. And the irony is, it's as if we've said, it started in the Victorian period, it started with Fairfield, it started at Govan, but the history of that goes further back into the city centre, into that old part that sort of we built over and we moved west and we, you know, we set up new communities and the university moved to the West End as well. But the history of all of that stuff, you know, really from, from the weaving and all the rest of it started right in the heart of the city. And um, in the Georgian period, because this a lot of this took place round about this what I think of as the spine of the high street, wasn't it? And that's yeah, the exactly. Was there? I think medical school was up there as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so you had the that's exactly right. So pretty much from the cathedral all the way down the high street to the cross, you had the the university, you had the the other teaching houses on the high street opposite, and then down. At the riverfront um, on Clyde Street, you had the town's hospital, the first proper hospital in, in Glasgow. And they, I mean, I think that there's a records book from the um, Faculty of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow that shows that a lot of the, the medical literati, if we call them that, who were in Glasgow, who then went to Edinburgh, would likely have practised at the town's hospital. And I think that was established in the 1720s or 30s. And the building's no longer there. That's one of the as with a lot of this book you're looking at paintings or engravings of buildings that are no longer there so it's always exciting when it is because you can go visit it but the town's hospital um was kind of like the, the end point if you want of that spine from the from the cathedral all the way down because obviously at the cathedral as well you would have the the royal infirmary in 1791 was built there so so still that that spine right up until the end of the 18th century was the main hub of activity for medical practicing and and university teaching and how they started to coexist. And was that when the necropolis was built? Uh, yeah, the, the necropolis was laid out in the 1820s or 30s. Um, and the the John Knox statue, I want to say, was 1825. So that was that was and is still the sort of tallest standing structure there. 
but the necropolis um, right on the back of the, I think it was Firth Park it was called, not Motherwell Football Club, but Firth okay. Park as in the, the name of the green behind the necropolis. And there's some beautiful paintings of, of that view. So I think the great thing about when you think about cultural memory is you, you try and find images that are, that are echoes. So you've pointed to the front cover and how you can see the Tron. You can do that today. You can go and stand and have a look down that exact avenue and see what's different. Obviously, a lot of it is. But in the 1690s, there was a, I think he was he was Dutch. There was a, a guy who took engravings of Glasgow and he took a view up by where the necropolis is of the cathedral and the surrounding sort of buildings. And it's, it's stunning because someone um, in the 1840s then painted the same scene. And so you take both of those together and you sort of superimpose them, whatever you, however you want to do it. And you can see through time the way that the Georgian period, you can see the steeples, you can see the smoke from the chimneys of early industry. It's pretty much all there from how it started off as a, in the late 17th, um, early 18th century as a small, small, probably religious town, you would call it, or a centre of fishing into this sort of mercantile hub of activity and Certainly not, you know, smog-covered skies the way that we would then come to understand Glasgow, but certainly the beginnings of it. So it's very interesting. So in a way, you know, you talk about uh, in the introduction, you talk about how Glasgow um, kind of self-image is is created by almost anecdote and um, yeah. well-worn tropes, if you like. You know, people talk about shipbuilding, tea, tobacco, yeah. you know, the, the things that we kind of all know. Did you see it as your job to almost join these together, say, well, they do they exist, or they do exist, but what came before them and what came between them? Yeah, exactly. So I wasn't trying to um, discredit or take away from these these themes. And you're right. that I mean, that's the thing when it comes to identity and civic pride is that these themes didn't just come out of nowhere. So I wanted to know wh where did they come from and have we sort of come to a point now where not that they're... Um, not that they're not as valuable, but have they maybe been misunderstood or, or like passed through the generations with a little bit of liberties taken regarding the truth. So it was to see where they came from and maybe interrogate a little bit if there's other things that are more realistic. Like that old saying, um, the Clyde made Glasgow, Glasgow made the Clyde. I might have got it the wrong way around, but that's that's a famous one because the city is very much dependent on its river. But would, the, the, the ironic thing for me is that, that a lot of the ship trade, a lot of the shipping happened at Port Glasgow and Greenock. So the yeah. Clyde didn't actually get dredged and deepened until well into the, you know, the Victorian period. And by then you're talking about the fact that Glasgow had already created a foundation of wealth based on just using other cap capabilities. So that, that Clyde theme has always been one that I've tried to interrogate because it seemed to me a little bit too reductive. And I thought, um, if it's clear to everyone in history that the Clyde wasn't opened up until a certain time, how can we say, how can we treat that river as this sort of eternal spring well of, of wealth and of goodness, you know? Because even the poets were guilty of it. The poets of that time would would talk about the river as this like this this holy thing that had created Glasgow. But it's the Mall and Diner burn up at the cathedral where the whole St. Mungo legend comes from. So it's a different it's a different treacle of water altogether. And I just wanted to sort of reposition, reposition it almost. But I think, I, well, I think most cities probably have this, but Glasgow certainly has this thing about the folk tales and the anecdotes become text, they become facts. Yeah. And you, you look into them and think, well, I didn't know until oh, about 10 years ago, maybe, that the Clyde had been widened so much to allow 
the ships yeah. right into the heart of Glasgow, and before that, they were kind of nowhere near it. Yeah, that's right. And there's even in maps. I mean, that's one of the things that I've became sort of obsessed with maps, and maybe you have to during this sort of research. But it's funny when you look at a map of say Glasgow in 1770. And there's wee motifs all around it, and there's maybe a couple of ships, and there's maybe a barrel for maybe some fish or something like that. And then you go to like 1850, and the whole bottom of the map's just teeming with masts and sails because obviously the, the that's the ships are all here now. That's it. We've opened it up, and so it's kind of like a visual, and the visuals are very important when it comes to memory. And Glasgow has a lot of visual identicates. I mean, the, the four the four legends of Saint Mungo are dotted everywhere in the city. And it's always been a bit of a source of pride for me that the cathedral still stands and that those those elements of of Glasgow's foundation are, are very much still part of the civic identity, no matter what religious sectarian divide still exists. I think that's quite interesting. And how was Glasgow viewed by the rest of the world during this period? Um, well, there's there's one little example I like to look at where there was a French author, I think it was called, I think it was Charles Naudier, and I think he had come over to Glasgow and had written a novel. I want to say it was called The Crumb Fairy. Right. Right. I think that, I don't know the French for it, and I'm not going to try and do it here, but he actually references a couple of the Glasgow medics in it, and I think he spends time in one of the asylums in a sort of reportage sort of way, and just that sort of European view of Glasgow at the time it certainly seems that they're aware that it was a centre, and you've already mentioned here today, Ali, that the medical and the scientific aspect of Glasgow was one of the most um, clearly defined parts of the Scottish Enlightenment. Europe certainly seemed to see it the same way. There's a lot of connections between the the people in Glasgow who practised it in Leiden, for example, or who went to Paris. And so I think the, the continental Europe had a good view of Glasgow as a, a burgeoning place of enlightenment, especially where medicine was concerned. But thanks to the Fowlis brothers, not to mention them too often, they certainly gave Glasgow a reputation for fine printing. I mean, they became um, a very well-known name in Europe. So I think they were called the Elzevers of Glasgow, and I'm blanking on where they're from, but th that name was the, the biggest name in printing in Europe in the 17th century, and the Fowlis brothers styled themselves as something equivalent to them for the 18th century, and their reputation, especially for their fine books, did travel across the continent. So yeah, it was it was looked on favourably, but I, I dare say that by the mid to late 18th century, it started to become the case that Glasgow was known more for being a town of trade and uh, a merchant class who were very much about increasing the wealth of their town and showing off that wealth with splendid new buildings. Um, whereas Edinburgh, on the other hand, and I would say Murray Pittock's book on Edinburgh for a, a clear view of how Continental Europe had a, a better view of Edinburgh during during the, the 18th century, certainly for those things. But yeah, globally, I think Glasgow has more to say for itself in the 19th century and then into the Victorian period. But it's a tricky one, and I think that the book tries to look at Glasgow on the face of it and then start to uncover what we've forgotten. But one thing that I could look at in the future is how globally Glasgow was defined during that period. It's an interesting question. And uh, you mentioned in slavery, and that maybe is the subject more than any other, where um, which had been overlooked, perhaps for obvious reasons. Certainly when I was younger, it was never really discussed, Glasgow's role in this. But yet, as you say, it's in, hidden in plain sight. It's on the, the yeah. street names and it's in the buildings and all of those things. Um, 
what can you say about that? Because it's in the it's quite a central part to the book. Yeah, um, well, what I, what I would say about that is that there's a problem today where there are people who want to the pro, the problem derives from the fact that some some parts of society just don't want to believe this could have happened, and I understand that it's because. People are proud of their their identity and their past. And whether you class yourself as Scottish or British, I think there's people who would class themselves as both who just don't want this part of Glasgow's history to be at the face of it because they think, right, aye, but, you know, England where Liverpool was worse or look at America, you know, there was, there was worse things being done there. And it's almost a bit of, I don't know if you would call it shame or if you would say that they just think it's unnecessary. But on the other hand, you have everyone in, not not everyone in, in the academy, but you have people all across cu- the cultural spectrum who say no. But the point is, we realise, we recognise that this shouldn't have happened. Yeah. It's helped build up the wealth of our city. The there's studies done into how the city chambers, with all its, I mean, the city chambers in Glasgow, 1887 or 1888, so built pretty much on a lot of slavery wealth. It's like it's nobody's saying we're going to tear that down, right? Nobody's saying we're going to take the take it down brick by brick. But there's nothing wrong with saying. Here's a splendid building that we have and that we use, but we have to say there's a there's a darker history that sort of influenced the wealth of the city. So what I would say is my book tries to address some of the foundational moments in the 18th century where slavery was discussed, abolition was discussed. Um, the, I try and draw out the sort of heroes and villains almost because you had Adam Smith who seemed to be very much anti-slavery, but in the wealth of nations, he's, he's sort of pining for the for, for civilization to take the next step forward and to become globally enriched, and that very much did depend on servitude, that depended on there being a lower class. And that, again, is why Adam Smith is one of the more complicated figures when it comes to this sort of thing. Um, so slavery is central because it's there in the built environment, but especially since 2020, people are now asking, is that a suitable representation of our town? The, the Colston statue in Bristol, for example, I think I seen the other day Jeremy Clarkson of all people trying to say that that we're all that we're all daft for wanting to to make it make any sort of mark on this, and I think that just shows the widespread ignorance and the fact that you know how dare you have an opinion on something or how dare you want to 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 ease the pains of history by admitting things happened. We're not talking about you know dismantling or renaming Glasgow. We're talking about elevating other parts of the history alongside what we already have and I think that's the that's the important distinction. I was at the beginning there when you said oh but Bristol was worse or Liverpool was worse yeah. even in, in something like this that kind of what about that you get yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's exactly prevalent. it's so it is. but uh, I completely understand that's what it's like and uh, I'm sure now we've got to the stage where you know Anyone who denies that it happened, you know, surely it, the, the, the weight of evidence is, is just there. And oh, yeah. going back to the idea of cultural memory, it's essential. You can't have a memory where you're deliberately, you know, forgetting parts of it. You know, just yeah. see the memory that you want to see. If you're going to look at the yeah. whole thing, you have to look at the whole thing. And as you say, it's yeah. in the art, it's in the buildings, it's in the, you know, the writing at the time. Um, and it's just uncovering that, I guess. Yeah. Do you know what's fascinating as well, though, Ali, is that even with the evidence and the facts laid out, these things are so heated and contested that you can lay out facts or archival evidence or science even, and you can say, here's things that happened. 
But if it doesn't align with what someone wants to believe, they'll still rubbish it. Like, the, for example, in 2007, the, the bicentenary of the passing of the Slave Trade Act or the Abolition Act, I can't remember which, which one was 1807, but there was a lot of commemorative events done in, throughout Britain that year to say, here's a part of our past, we're not proud of it, but we're going to commemorate it and say, you know, here's the evidence. So there was, a, in the People's Palace, there was a whole exhibition dedicated to the Glassford portrait. Mm-hmm. And part of the, the redisplay of it was the fact that they had conservators in, they had x-ray work done on it to, to uncover the, the black servant who was in the picture. And this is probably the biggest, most potent lightning rod for Glasgow and slavery is this image. Yeah. And the myth that had survived from the 70s, maybe well before that, was that the family, the Glassford family, or some sort of very shamefaced Glaswegian curator once upon a time had painted over him. Yeah. But the evidence is that it wasn't ever painted over, but that the, the varnish had gathered dust and dirt and that it was just obscured. So it had to be cleaned up. Now, the, the ironic thing is, even with all that evidence, as, as long ago as 2007, there are still commentators today using the word cover up, using the word of neglected, forgotten, amnesia based on a lie almost. But it, you have to then keep reiterating it. So when it was displayed in 2014 as well, as part of the How Glasgow Flourished exhibition, there was attempts made to say, here's this painting, you know, there's a there's a slave in it, we're talking about slavery here, and people are still neglecting the fact that Glasgow ever had this past. And it, that, that's what astounds me, that's where memory is important, because myth versus fact is one of the big tropes here, you know. It's the same with Robert Burns, one of the most mythic icons in, in Scotland. You know, it's like all, all the things that you could disprove about Burns, people will still believe it because it's famous, it's popular, and it's maybe the more, enjoy, the more enjoyable part of his past or whatever it is, you know. It's the headline, isn't it? You skinny, the, the, the clickbait of the Georgian period. That's it. That's <laughs> it. You've coined a new phrase. The click, historical clickbait is a thing we have to investigate. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, how... Glasgow was represented in literature at the time, but and well, even now, uh, you know, yeah. it, the way that it is. But one of my favourite um, scenes in any book is going back to the high street. That's in Walter Scott's Rob Roy, and he yeah. goes out of the the prison, which is at the bottom of High Street, just before Salt Market, and yeah. he goes up to to the cathedral. So you've got that spine and. I was living on High Street at the time, so it was like, oh, he was more fun. Right outside my window, which I, I love, <laughs> but. Um, so how was the literature at the time using Glasgow? You know, it's funny, that was because of my sort of background and working with yourself and publishing and just being interested in writing in general. My first hope was I'm going to find all the sort of the big hitters of literature back then and, and try and draw them out a wee bit. And I bet you there's loads of forgotten ones. But the ironic thing was the big Glasgow, the biggest Glasgow name probably in terms of poetry back then was Thomas Campbell and he writes about Glasgow maybe three times in total. Oh, he was yeah. more interested in writing about North America. He wrote Ye Mariners of England. You know, we're talking about the problem here is Britain is becoming a very powerful idea and the empire is a very attractive prospect for a lot of writers. And so to assign themselves the role of promoting empire and colonization, they sometimes neglect their roots. And you've said already today that Sometimes it's getting out and then looking back, you know, and that's when things start to to appear. Tobias Smollett writes about Glasgow in his first novel. And then in his last novel, he sort of does a tour 
um, in the expedition of Humphrey Clinker. He does a sort of tour of Scotland and he points out, look at the famous observatory of Glasgow University, look at Clyde Bank, then we'll go to Edinburgh. And that whole thing was was just a fun sort of retrospective. He's almost gathering up the best things about Glasgow. So that there are representations, but they're not as they're not as um, well spread as you would hope they would be. You have to sometimes you really do have to go looking for them. One of my favourite ones is that you have um, the novel. So there's another big name to mention if I can, but there's a there's a novel called Cyril Thornton written by a guy called Thomas Hamilton. I think it was the 1820s it was published, and it's about a guy who grows up in Glasgow, moves away, and comes back. And when he comes back, he finds that the Hunterian Museum has been built in the old campus. And he's horrified by this because the beauty of the old campus is that it was a 17th century thing. It had, for them, it was it was old, it was romantic. And now this new um, 1820s building is plopped down in front of it. And they say that the line is, it's as if it's dropped from the heavens and, and it just ruins the effect. Now for us sitting here in the 21st century, we're like, oh, I'd love to have seen that. Now, yeah. it's been, now it's been assumed into the new campus. So we're talking about layers upon layers of, of reference to different things that happened that you have to go looking for. The, the biggest name in prose for Glasgow literature is definitely John Galt. Yeah. Um, he obviously is most famous for Annals of the Parish, and that's the sort of urban um, parish town of, you know, so, and, and Glasgow's at the edges of it. Liam McIlvany writes about this really well, about how Glasgow's like a spectre in that novel. All the improvements that are happening in Glasgow start to creep in into Irvine and the surrounding parishes. And he also, Galt, has a whole um, has a whole network of reference for, for Glasgow growing. And one of the best ways that he does that, because he writes a lot about revolution. Of um, During the French Revolution, he was quite active in, uh, so, sorry, writing about that time. So what's interesting about him is he talks about the, the, the streets growing in Glasgow almost the same way that they would emanate from a, a weaver's web. And that, that's beautiful because we have... The, we're very proud of the weaving heritage in Glasgow. And here we have a writer, a Scottish writer, who is using that metaphor to, to illustrate Glasgow streets spreading out from its centre. So John Galt is definitely the main man for that. And he does actually represent in his fiction Glasgow as it's in the Georgian period. So even though he's writing in the 1820s and 30s, he, he looks back to the 1700s of Glasgow and he tries to, to capture it almost. So that in itself is a memory. And then we're accessing that memory and it yeah. becomes a bit of a maze. <laughs> and this was also a time where Scots were going out to the world as well, weren't they? They were starting to travel. Um, what was the effect of that? Um, well, that, one of my chapters looks at emigration and the fact that Scots who would go to Nova Scotia and Canada especially would would try and bring a little bit of home with them. There's, there's a famous sort of references to... Scots who travelled across the Atlantic and would, would the seeds from their blankets that they carried over would create, you know, heather would flourish on the mount, on the hillsides there. And all that's very romantic and we'll never say, maybe, maybe we will, we'll never say for sure whether or not that's the case, but it shows you the sort of, um, the, the whole, the, the, the metaphor is, is beautiful for what Scots were wanting to do back then. The thing I find interesting to mention Galt again is that Galt very much saw travel emigration and traveling to North America as a fresh start. He mentions quite a lot of the time the the old sort of bigoted ways of, of, of Scotland in that time. You know, there was persecution was still rife. There was 
people holding prejudice against each other for witchcraft still back then. So, so there was a lot going on in Glasgow and in Scotland and in Britain that people thought, now, with the, now that we've got the best ideas of what society is, let's go somewhere else and, and start again. And Gault actually helped establish the town of Guelph. Um, and he was acting as an agent for, for Britain when he'd done that, but he then wrote about it in the, the novel uh, Bogle Corbett. That's the name of the guy. The, the character names are always very odd. But the beautiful, there's a beautiful passage in that book where he actually writes about Glaswegian workmen found, founding a new town, and they decide to call the town Stockwell because of Stockwell Street with his pals and he's cleared a large forest area and he's set up a town and they've planned it all out what churches will be there they want to represent every denomination and they end up calling it Guelph which is a reference to the the royal Hanoverian seat so it's quite funny because you've got in his fiction the sort of Glaswegian emanation across the Atlantic but in reality he's, he's like well they're paying my wages I better give the the monarchs a shout you know but the Emigration is another huge part of it. And we talk about Scottish diaspora. There's other scholars who are a lot more um, well-versed on talking about that. I try and touch on it in, in this book based on how Glasgow moves with these characters, with these people, and what sort of inflections of Glasgow appear across the Atlantic especially. But um, yeah, it was obviously a part of the, the whole exchange during the Georgian period of ideas and culture where we had new um, new communities coming in but we would send people out as well and um yeah that whole that whole side of it's fascinating i think a lot of the writers try to capture it in their works that's really interesting um a long time ago i was at a conference in spain and i was sitting beside a guy from um i think he was from germany and he said why is there no scottish diaspora there's, a, there's the irish diaspora but there's no scottish diaspora i'm thinking yes there is but um yeah. why isn't it better known so i guess it's just yeah. because it hadn't been written about academically yeah, exactly. I think the last 10 years or so, I mean, you've got a lot of big, early early 2000s, you've got a lot of the big historians who are still active now writing about empire, and they would focus a lot on the good aspect of it, if you know what I mean. Like, they, they, that slavery and such was mentioned, but they were looking at how you can promote a Scottish imperial effort on its own, but obviously within the confines of, you know, it's still the United Kingdom of great of, of the UK back then, so you're talking about um, how, how the Scottish story was forgotten. And so that's maybe you could see that as phase one of the Scottish diaspora. We, we talk about um, the empire. So which Scottish people were doing what in the, in, during the empire? And does that create a new idea of Scotland as a, a very forward-facing nation with its, obviously, its ills and its, its evil deeds in tow, as with any empire? Uh, and then nowadays you're saying, right, we understand more about which parts of history affected our, our city's growth directly. So we can actually tease them out and, and start to look at Glasgow's effect across the Atlantic as well. So yeah, there's been other there's been many scholars in the last ten years, I'd say especially, who have tried to in, increase the the terms of, of that history. And yeah, kind of end the book looking at the great exhibitions, as you say. Um, yeah. You say a bit about them because I think a lot of people won't. They maybe heard the name, but they won't really be aware of what the great exhibitions were, or particularly the main one. Yeah, the, the big one in Glasgow in 1881, um, sorry, is that right, 1888? I think I'm getting my dates mixed up now, but I think it's 1888. But the, the biggest one that happened was was in the Kelvin Grove area. Now, the, the fascinating thing about this is they tried to say that 
here's what Glasgow is, and they would put their, their mechanical structures in place, they would put their, their new feats in engineering would be on show. And I think there's writers, there's um, theorists throughout the last 30, 40 years who talk about modernism and who talk about early modernism when the machine, the, the aspect of machinery and mechanical development started to replace or define a nation almost. So obviously mechanized warfare in the form of World War I hadn't happened yet, but what you start to see in those first Glasgow exhibitions is the, the power almost of engineering starting to supplant the old Scotland. And actually it gets quite comical because during these exhibitions, they did start to pastiche old Scotland. So in Glasgow, there was the Bishop's Castle that the ruins of the Bishop's Castle were still visible during the 18th century until they built the Royal Infirmary and they pulled them down and then they built the Royal Infirmary on top of it. And it was a it was a glorious moment because they were saying out with the old and with the new, especially because the Bishop's Castle represented the Catholic past of, of Glasgow that a lot of the, the elite back then weren't too keen on remembering. The interesting thing is by the late 19th century, Mary Queen of Scots is a romantic figure. The Bishop's Castle is something to be proud of. So what they do is they, they erect a sort of wooden and, uh, you know, a, a very, to us, maybe a sham version of the real thing. But apparently in the, in the guidebooks for these exhibitions, that it was so realistic that tourists would come up to it with their umbrellas and start poking at the walls to see if they were real. So they had actually, during the Victorian period, they had started to reclaim those parts of old Glasgow or old Scotland and, and said, let's have a look at them again. And they started to erect, you know, fake versions of it. And I think that's fascinating because we are thinking about what are the best ways to remember George and Glasgow? Is it in the museum? Is it by renaming streets? Is it by by writing books and having conferences and things like that? But back then it was all about the show, the spectacle. And that's, for me, that's when the image of Glasgow was set in stone. That's when the older period, the romantic period, the day of Burns and everything before was sort of seen as a little bit through the rose tinted glasses, but the real serious business is industry, you know, mechanical advancement, let's go into the future. And I think it's quite pivotal that, that the exhibitions were the stage for that. So the history almost becomes a drama with, with costume yeah. and the sets and all of that kind of thing. And the, the important yeah. stuff is the, the stuff that you can touch and, uh, you know, create. Yeah, well, exactly. The, the future, the, the horizon of the, the 20th century must have been quite something for them. And you know, you say costume. I think in the in the in the bishop's castle, they had the the waitresses as Mary Queen of Scots. They actually had them dressed up. So it's like the, a nation, a, a town who and a nation indeed who during her life absolutely reviled her at one point. You know, and hounded her towards her execution. Then starts to romanticise her. So that's what happens through history. Anyway, we know that. But in in Glasgow, that was one of the things that amused me most, and it does, however. By the the next few exhibitions, it takes on that sort of um, it takes on a more not a sinister gaze, but it takes on a bit of a not so politically correct gaze. I would say because the good thing about these exhibitions is they were the first one was so popular that the next one in nineteen oh one actually led to the construction of the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery and Museum. Mm-hmm. So that building was the showcase building. It what before that it was all temporary structures that were thrown up for the months that the exhibition ran. But 1901 marked the opening of the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery, which everyone in Glasgow loves. So that's something to be proud of. But during the next two exhibitions, they didn't know quite how to word them. You had the you had the the, the next one, the 1911 Scotland exhibition, which was very much a focus on old Scotland. 
the letters of Robert Burns, the poetry of Walter Scott. They had um, they had big busts of both of those authors made in soap. It was all very much about the novelty, the, the gaze into the past. But then in, the, in 1938, I think it was, you had the, the Empire Exhibition in Glasgow. This time it was in Bella Houston Park. Yeah. Up, up until then, they were all held in the Kelvin Grove area. But the 1938 one was the last big one. And by then, they had, they had still retained this sort of fantastical aspect of let's create a little small village of Scotland. It wasn't so much Glasgow's village back then. They, they made the Clacken, right? And the Clacken was supposed to be a highland village. Um, but beside that, you had like an, an old African village as well. So this is the thing about this is we're starting to delve into uh, racial tropes here that make the, that whole period, the early 20th century, the sort of the gaze into the past was a little bit problematic is the word you would use today, because geographically they've taken geographically and historically, they've taken a big chunk of Scotland from probably the 1600s. They've dragged it down into the Bellaston Park. They've then taken the Laplander section, the African section, and they're all together. The crucial thing about this is you would get entry to the exhibition and walk around it, but you had to pay a fee to go and see these little parts. It was almost like a carnival almost. You would you would go in and see how the how the Africans lived, how the Laplanders lived, how the ancient Scots lived in the Highlands. And so for me, this is why I talk about the future so much, because by then the people who would attend these things would see themselves as modern. They would yeah. see themselves as very much part of a new identity call it british scottish whatever you want but for them these these glances into the past were almost novel and i think that's quite an interesting thing well it's a fascinating book craig absolutely i can't wait to read the rest of it and go into it in detail oh thank you and uh, thanks for chatting to us today it's been great to catch up with you yeah you too always happy to talk to you so it was good fun and uh, we'll be back soon with someone completely different cheers <laughs> <laughs>